One day, Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, Call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, Tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her? Elisha asked. Gehazi said, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord, she objected. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. But the woman became pregnant, and the next day, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was reaping, who was with the reapers. My head, my head, he said to his father. His father told a servant, servant carry him to his mother after the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother the boy sat on her lap until noon and then he died she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God then shut the door and went out she called to her husband and said please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. It's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my lord, she said. Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, Tuck your cloak into your belt, take my staff in your hand and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. 
Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to Elisha and told him, The boy is not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out upon him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite, and he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. I'd love you, as I always do, to have the Bible on your lap. doesn't matter if it's an electronic screen or a printed page, but do please have 2 Kings 4 on your lap. I want to take you and tell you about a childhood memory of mine, but before I do that, I need to tell you about a, a memory that was pricked in July. In July, I was in Martin and Sharon's uh, hallway, and there on the wall by their front door is a painting that I don't have not noticed before, and it's of historic Paul Key. And that was what pricked my memory of this childhood memory. I spent many Saturday mornings on historic Paul Key and an arcade. Now, for you uh, youngsters, the uh, top left-hand corner in the picture is a remarkable game. It's called Outrun, when graphics were graphics, pixelated perfection. None of this PS5, 6, or 7, or whatever number we're up to now. But this is Outrun for 20p on a Saturday morning. You could uh, put your coin in, and you could enjoy as many minutes as you could run away or drive away from the police. That was behind the game. It's the only time I've done it. Well, no, there's one other time, but that was in real life. That's for another sermon another time. But uh, Paul Key, Paul Amusements, was where I spent many a Saturday morning, 20p piece, and you give unadulterated joy of running away from police in a car seat. Top right-hand corner, if that's not your cup of tea, you could enjoy for 20p again, air hockey. Air hockey, where you're fighting against the tyranny of your brother, who's uh, whacking back towards you at X-rated knots, a plastic puck that's suspended on air. Great fun. And then there was the one-armed bandit. The one-armed bandit, which if your mum and dad weren't looking, you could put 20p or maybe a little more. And you, you, you put the money in and, and you pull the slot on the side and, and you see if your numbers come up and see if your dad catches your eye or not. And then there's that fascinating game devised by someone evil, where you put in a 2pp, a copper coin of delight, and before you there were uh, shelves shoving the 2p coins towards you, and if you had the right skill and the right physical education, you could place it in the right place, and then the, the, uh, the shelves would be out of kilter, and then the 2p would drop, drop down, and you might get 4p back. <laughs> Marvels never cease. I spent a lot of time on Saturday mornings at Paul Key. Paul Amusement Arcade, and there were other games as well involving shooting people of various description on the screen, of course. But sometimes we can more seriously treat God that way. 
very easy to treat God as a slot machine, isn't it? You put in not 20p piece or a 10p coin, you put in a prayer. In goes a prayer, you know what you want, and the prayer uh, activates the slot machine. You pull the lever and you know what God should give you, not three sevens in the middle of a screen, not barrels, but you know the prayer that God should answer for you, and then the answer doesn't come. Very easy to treat God like a slot machine, and if it's not prayer, then surely it's good works. God, you know what I've done throughout my life. I've not been as bad as them. I've been better than them. You owe me. In goes not prayer, but in goes good works. You pull the slot machine and God owes you. Very easy to treat God like that, isn't it? Trouble is, sometimes life sends you the bitterness of lemons, but you're in no mood to make lemonade. We've been looking throughout the summer at Elijah and Elisha, these careers of these two men of God in the Old Testament. We're in 2 Kings 4 this morning. And we meet a woman who's very, very affluent. Verse 8 of 2 Kings 4 tells us that this Shunammite woman is well-to-do. I mean, she's well-heeled. She's well-heeled enough to do a bit of home improvement for the man of God. And she does a, a roof extension so that when he comes by, he's got somewhere to lay his head and he's got somewhere to put his feet. It's hard for us to imagine the significance of what happens in verse 16. She has all that the world can offer because she's well-to-do, verse 8. But one thing she lacks, which is a son or a daughter, a child, someone who would provide for her in her old age. What can we give her? Elisha says to his servant. There's only one thing we can give her that she needs, and it's a son. God is going to bless you with a child, verse 16. A year later, the child appears. Later on in the story, verse 18 and 19, the son who's grown up is now complaining of a severe headache. My head, my head. Take him back to his mother, says the father. Verse 20, the boy is now on her lap. The boy sat on her lap until noon and then he died. Tragedy, mercy in the place of need and then tragedy. Sometimes life sends you lemons but you're in no mood to make lemonade what does she do this remarkable woman the only resource i have the only hope i have is to get an ass get a donkey and get as quickly as i can to the man of god oh that he would pray to god oh that there would be a miracle that's my only hope that's my only resource for my dead son and there's a remarkable reality of a resurrection in the Old Testament. Now, what do we learn from this whistle-stop tour? Resurrection throughout the Bible is the ultimate miracle. In the Bible, we see remarkable miracles. The blind see, the deaf hear. Remarkable amounts of food are provided for crowds of people in the ministry of King Jesus. But the most remarkable miracle in New Testament, and even more remarkably, arguably, in the Old Testament, is the miracle of the resurrection. Four words to think about, please, about the miracle of the resurrection. Who, when, how, what? Who, when, how, and what? Who does this power come to? When does it come? What does it mean? And so on. First of all, who? Who does this miracle, this miraculous power, come through? Who's the channel? Who's the conduit for this power of God to come into the life of this dead boy? Now, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's the woman. It's the mum. 
the men in this story have a very unsatisfactory report when it comes to faith. Elisha seems to make a few wrong steps. Gehazi gets in the way. The husband doesn't even know that his son is dead. Did you notice that? His wife didn't even tell him. Perhaps he couldn't cope, but she could. She's a remarkable woman. Verse 30, if you look down, please. It's interesting that Elisha sends Gehazi with the staff to try and resurrect the boy, and it doesn't work. It's clunky. I'm not leaving you, says the lady. She's determined to lay hold of God through the man of God. She knows what she needs. She longs for a resurrection. She's a remarkable woman of the Old Testament. Through the woman, not through the husband, not through Gehazi, comes the resurrection power of God. Now that got me scratching my head. There are ten resurrections in the Bible. There are three in the Old Testament and there are seven in the New. Here they are, just to prove the point. You can look at uh, where we started the series in 1 Kings 17 in the ministry of Elijah. You meet the widow of Zarephath and we're now in 2 Kings 4 with the Shunammite woman. There's a burial party where just a bone, just a bone touches someone and they come back to life. That's just the Old Testament. You get to the New Testament, seven resurrections in the New Testament that you can see here. And who receives back, bar one, who receives back the dead person to life? It's always women, with one exception. It's the widow of Zarephath. It's the Shunammite woman. In the New Testament, it's Mary and Martha who receive back Lazarus. In Luke 7, it's the widow of Nain in Acts chapter 9. It's the widows of Joppa who get Dorcas, their friend, back. Women have faith. Women have faith. Men don't. Women do. Men have uh, one example of faith of receiving back a dead person to life. Virtually every case bar one, it's women who are the conduit of faith in God for resurrection. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first people who received Jesus back from the ultimate resurrection, are all women. Now that made me scratch my head. With one exception, nine cases, <laughs> it's women who are the conduit of faith. Now what does it show? This is what I think it means. Throughout the Bible, we are taught it's the marginalized who understand the power of God and the gospel before the empowered and the entitled. It's the weak who understand the gospel before the strong do. It's the poor who understand the gospel before the wealthy do. It's the people who have been kept away from societal power who grasp the good news of the gospel before the entitled and the people of responsibility and standing do. The gospel of grace is so different from the message of our world, isn't it? The gospel of grace is surrender. It's not of self-standing and self-aggrandizement and self-reliance and control. It's about God reaching down into our mess and our sin and rescuing us. And that's why the poor see it before the rich and the entitled. Of why the weak see it before the strong. It's by women who historically have always been downtrodden before the men. Every other religion says this, summon up your strength, summon up your resources, do your good works, here's what you need to do, and then God will bless you. It's just an equation. It's just religious maths. And then comes the gospel, and the gospel says, no, 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 salvation is accomplished by someone who lost all his power, who experienced defeat, who experienced dejection, who experienced a horrible defeat, and it's this salvation that the gospel 
speaks of. It's this salvation that is good news. It's this salvation that you do not save yourself because you can't. You can only be rescued. It's only God who has power to save. That women in general are quicker to understand than men. It's the poor who in general grasp this quicker than the rich. It's the weak who in general grasp this quicker than the strong. It's those who don't make an idol out of power who grasp this before those who have power. It's people who have faith and grace who grasp the gospel. And that's who have power to receive it. That's the who. And the Bible tells us so. It's just the complete opposite on how we view religion. But when did it happen? Notice when the resurrection power was received. Now this is interesting. We are very tempted to treat God like the slot machine. Are we not? In goes good works, in goes prayer. We pull the right arm and we expect God to answer our prayers. But this passage in the whole Bible teaches us that God is not automatic. He's not mechanical. He is loving. He's always wise. And he operates in a personal level. Look at it from this passage. When you read, when you read it, did it strike you that Elisha, the man of God, tries to do a miracle two, three times, and it just doesn't work? Look down at verse 25 to verse 26. Gehazi, now you're younger than me. I'm sure he thought that. You're young. Get your skates on. 20 miles away. This is an emergency. Run. Really practically, you will get there quicker than me. You go. You're my sidekick. You've learned some things from me. Go and pray over the dead boy. Run for it. Off goes Gehazi, and it doesn't work. I mean, time is critical, thinks Elisha. God thinks time is not critical. Remember Lazarus? And Jesus stayed where he was. Here's the second thing. He sends the staff, verse 29. Take my prophet staff, put it on the boy's face. That will work. It worked for Moses. It will work for me. But it didn't. It didn't work. He does all this stuff. Verse 35. When the boy finally comes up, instead of the boy saying, praise the Lord, that you might expect him to say, he sneezes seven times. It's really odd detail. Everything that you would expect to happen doesn't happen. Because God is not automatic. He's not mechanical. So one of the things you have to learn is this. God's power is not under our authority and control. The Lord is on his throne. He works mysteriously and wonderfully and with authority and in his own good timing. And that, my friends, is a hard, hard truth. But God is not automatic. Here's religion. You do everything right and God will owe you. You give the right amount. You go to the right place. You do the right things. You say the right words and God will be in your debt. You'll receive something. It's just a matter of ritual. God's grace works personally and graciously. It can be sudden, it's often gradual. It's never mechanical. God is gracious. He's a God who doesn't owe us a thing. And so he works in his good time. He's not under our control. But he's always kind, even when we think he's harsh. He's always personal. He's never mechanical. So who gets the power? Those with faith and those with grace, when do they get the power? In God's personal and wise timing, never automatically. But how? How does it happen? How does the power come? 
Now, yesterday, uh, one of my sons and I went up to the Imperial War Museum. It's one of my favorite trips. It's, very, it's always moving. We walked all the way through World War II exhibition. That is incredibly personal. It's multimedia used sensitively and wisely and well, and it tells the, the global narrative of World War II. And then it focuses in on individual lives from every side, Japan, uh, China, France, New Zealand, Canada, Germany, it, England. It's so well balanced and so well done. Every culture, every society wrestles with the reality of death, doesn't it? You see it in art, you see it in uh, printed images, you see it in moving images, you see it on stage and screen alike. Every culture struggles with the reality of death. The Bible speaks very clearly from its very first page, really, about the reality of death. God created a wonderfully good and perfect world. We didn't want to live under his loving rule and reign. And so the wages of our sin and rebellion and self-rule is death. And that's a hard truth for us. We treat others by our own standards, which is harsh and unkind. We want to rule and we want to reign in our own image. And as we turn our back on God, there is only one consequence that we deserve. The wages of sin is death. So how can this woman in 2 Kings 4 have the audacity and the courage to say, I would like an exception. My son has died who I long to receive. I thought I never would, but I would like an exception. I know the wages of sin is death. You may have seen that or understood that in embryonic form, but I want a resurrection. How could God possibly do that? We saw it in 1 Kings chapter 7 with Elijah. Now here we are with Elisha. And in verse 33 to verse 34, it literally says that he lays his body on top of the corpse of the boy. Mouth to mouth, eye to eye. It says literally palm to palm. Elisha identified physically with the boy. Elisha filled the exact space that the boy occupied upon him. The boy was hidden in Elisha. In Elisha's life, a live corpse was on top of the dead corpse. Now what Elisha did symbolically, Jesus did in reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How does the power of resurrection come to the boy? The power of God like a conduit through faith comes through the mum, but through the actions and graciousness of God through Elisha on top of him. He was hidden in him. The power of God came to him. God looked down on Elisha and didn't see the boy, but saw his servant. And so 2 Corinthians says, on the cross, God made him sin who knew no sin. The justice of God came down onto the Son of God. The death that we deserved came down onto the living one, Jesus Christ. He died in our place so that now by faith we are hidden in him. Just as the boy was hidden in Elisha's life. Back up to the Imperial War Museum yesterday. We also went to World War I exhibition. It's even more heartbreaking and rendering when you look at the numbers of people, men and women, boys and girls, who died on the battlefields of the world in World War One. Just imagine that you are in a foxhole, you're in a trench. In comes a hand grenade and you're faced with a choice. You either get out of 
the foxhole that you're in, the trench that you're in, or you can throw yourself on your friend, knowing that you will give your life for his or hers. The bomb will explode, the hand grenade will explode. Your life would be given for them. Either you hide them with your corpse, with your life, so that they can live, or you can escape and you can save your own life. That's what Jesus did. Jesus died for us. As it were, he covered us mouth to mouth, arm to arm, palm to palm. He died in our place and for our sake. The judgment of God came down upon him so that his righteousness can come to us. So that when God sees us, it's through him. When God sees Jesus, he sees us hidden in him. No, I'm going to try and be better this year. It's a new term. It's a new start. It's a new September. It's a new autumn. It's a new season. I'm going to start over. That lasts about an hour, if we're honest. But God loves to give new beginnings. And he's given the best new beginning in the life of his son. So we say, Father, don't accept me for what I've done. I praise you that I'm accepted because of what he has done. He stayed in the trench. He, he dove upon me. He saved me by giving his life. All of those rich images are true of Jesus. But Jesus is not just someone involved in an earthly war. It's a heavenly war. And he was willing to give his life. So that God now sees not you, but his perfect record. You don't just receive life and a new beginning. You receive his righteousness. His death becomes ours and his life becomes ours. Until you understand that, you're just a religious person. You'll just keep striving underneath like a swan. You might look like you're a Christian, but you're still functioning in a different way. But when you see it, when you see that Jesus died in your place, when you see that Jesus lay his life upon you, that he took your punishment and death, then he becomes beautiful to you. He becomes wonderful to you. He doesn't just become significant to you. It's not just true. It becomes precious to you. And you receive a new birth. You receive a new beginning. Now, so what? Fourthly, finally, three ways to rub this in. Three Ps. This should change you, this truth, Christian friend. People poise purpose. People poise purpose. Three ways that the new life that we have in Christ has the power to change us. If God sees Elisha, not the dead boy, so that life is given to him. If God sees Jesus, not you, that should help you with your understanding. With people, what do I mean? People have a big impact on me. I function like this. Sometimes God is small and people are big. Which means I put far too much sway in what people say about me and what they think about me. Maybe you do too. But if you understand that on the cross, just like Elisha covered the boy, on the cross, God now sees the righteousness of Jesus when he sees us because we are in him, we are hidden in him, we are beautiful in him, we are precious in him, we are forgiven in him, we are accepted in him, we are new in him, and so on. People can say what they like. People can think what they like. Because God sees me as beautiful in him. I'm not beautiful, but his son is so precious. But when God sees me, he only sees me hidden in his son. My sins are forgiven. My mistakes are now wiped clean. 
My guilt is removed far from me. I am a new person in him. So I can relate to people with freedom and joy. They can say what they want. They will not shape my identity. My identity is received. It's been given. It's been bestowed. I'm a new creation in him. The old is gone and the new has come. I'm at liberty. It could change you. Absolute assurance. No condemnation. I'm a new person in him. What a difference that would make. There'd be a fountain of joy in our hearts that would bubble and overflow so that we can interact with people in a, a generous way, that they're not controlled or bound by them because God is big and therefore people are small. That's just people. What about poise? This woman is remarkable. She's amazed me as I've looked at her again. She's amazing faith. She's relentless. She's like a laser beam throughout the story. Get out of the way, Gehazi. Get out of the way, husband. Give me a horse. Give me a quick horse. Quick one that's won the derby. I need to go and see the man of God. Because only God can rescue. Only God can save. Only God can resurrect. In verse 23... And in verse 26, if you had the authorized, the old King James Bible on your lap, it would really help you. Twice, the woman is asked, the woman whose name we don't know, by the way, she's asked, is it okay? Is all well with you? It literally says, she responds in her faith-filledness, in her confidence, placed firmly in God, in spite of death that she sees and felt on her lap. She says, verse 23, but it shall be well. Very interesting. Verse 26, it will be. She sees somehow into the future beyond death that she has this faith-filled heart that God has power and authority over death, that my son's life is not over. In the New Testament, he's just asleep, as Jesus says to a girl. In other words, she has this deep conviction foundationally in her heart, just by all our own personal resources, verse 8, that God and God alone can save. And so she pursues God with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is hope. God is good. Friends, without this poise that only faith in God can give, you'll either be a cynic or you'll be a romantic. But with the faith that God alone can give, you can say God is good, but pain is real. And you can face another day. That's what God's grace can do. Resurrection power changes how you deal with people. It gives you poise in your heart. Finally, quickly, it gives you purpose. The first Easter has changed everything, hasn't it? If Jesus Christ was just raised in a spiritual rather than a physical sense, that would mean everything to us individually. It would change us individually. It's all about us, about finding a new dimension to a personal life. Personal spirituality just increases. But because Jesus Christ was raised physically, that means the whole world will be redeemed physically. This truth in our hearts is good news for the whole world. And that means that we need to get our hands dirty because this world does matter. Pain will end. Disease and decay needs to be uh, fought against through the gospel lens, knowing that the world will be renewed and redeemed. But physical resurrection matters, which means bodies matter, which means the world matters, which means injustice matters, which means Christianity should be a fighting religion, not in terms of crusade where so much damage was done, but against oppression and injustice and decay and disease 
And anything where we see death, we need to fight against that with prayer and determination, knowing that God is in the business of resurrection. The dead are raised through Jesus. Or to quote Job, I know that my Redeemer lives and that I will see him in the future and he will rule the earth.